Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by the other half of the Nonsense Bazaar, Sequoia Kennedy. Sequoia, welcome to the podcast, man. Hello, Rob. It's it's good to be here. It's been a while in the making. We've been trying to do this for a while. I'm, I'm stoked. Yeah, we have been uh, trying to get this off the ground. We're finally doing it. And man, I've done too much of this abduction shit, and uh, <laughs> my my brain needs a break. So I figured, why not talk some shit about the CIA? And you're kind of the perfect person to have on to talk shit about the CIA. <laughs> I mean, I often use the CIA as a palate cleanser. I don't. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird thing to say. But you know what? They're kind of a palate cleanser. They are. They really are. Like, they're they're an easy punching bag. They, they're just, you know, scumbags of the fucking earth. And, um, you know, and... They they definitely got their hands on the UFO phenomenon kind of early in, in what they did with the government. So uh, for those listening, what we're talking about today is the Robertson panel, the illustrious CIA-led panel that uh, changed Project Blue Book's objective from, you know, kind of an open-minded study to something uh, a little more like uh, diverting public panic or perceived public panic and trying to manipulate the public into not taking UFOs too seriously. So, yeah, that's that's what we're going to we're going to talk about today is, you know, the the, the government, uh, you know, being silenced by another entity of the government. <laughs> yeah. I, the thing I was I was thinking about is like there's always this question with CIA and it's like sinister or stupid. Right. right. <laughs> Both maybe. Sometimes. Who knows? But pretending right. to be just really stupid is kind of the best defense against people realizing you're super sinister. That's <laughs> what yeah, I found, yeah. at least. Exactly. Like, um, sometimes, a lot of the times, actually stupid. Other times, playing stupid. So, you know, you got a combination of both. And, um, you know, with this... Um, we're going to start first with kind of the, the, the first honorable mention here of kind of a cover up. And it goes back to Project Sign, the government's first uh, UFO kind of project. Uh, we covered that way back. Episode six and nine. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the years 1947, 1948, flying saucers, hot off the scene. The, the first study of the phenomenon was a joint study between the Air Force and the FBI. And that relationship kind of quickly fizzled because the FBI didn't trust the Air Force and they had good reason not to because they were keeping information from them. So, you know, the, the first real study of it was a failure, an absolute failure. <laughs> yeah. The Air Force is like secretly the shadiest of all of them. I don't know how they managed that. They're right. <laughs> They're weird. I don't know. <laughs> a bunch of nerds. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They are a bunch of freaking nerds. Really uh, are with uh, with their toys, their, toys their gadgets, the knobs, <laughs> the dials, the levers. 
Get dressed, nerds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so in early 1948, you know, a more official study was commissioned, Project Sign. Yeah, if you want all the goods on Project Sign, folks, head back to episode nine, where like that episode vaguely resembles this podcast. But, uh, you know, one there was one particular report that rattled uh, the project's uh, heads really badly, resulting in a report that was kind of just like quickly destroyed. So July 24th, 1948, an Eastern Airlines DC-3 departed from Houston, Texas, headed for Atlanta. And at 2.45 a.m., the plane, piloted by Clarence R. Childs and John B. Witted, were 20 miles south of Montgomery, Alabama, when they saw a light directly in front of their plane. And they believed that it was a, an army jet just, like, closing in fast. So they quickly turned their plane to uh, get out of the path. And they described what... Uh, 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 like a cigar-shaped object that resembled uh, a B-29 fuselage in the steep climb, and it gives off this deep blue glow. And there were these uh, two rows of windows that uh, they were they glowed uh, across the center of this thing. And there was mm. a 50-foot trail of orange-red flame shooting behind this. So, like, this this seems like a rocket. Like just yeah. like booking it past. It reminds me of like a, a like a comic book rocket from like Amazing Stories from that time. Like that's odd. Yeah, it's yeah. very odd. Um, like also, it's a rocket that has windows on it, which is you right. know <laughs> what do you also need that for <laughs> some of that like early sci-fi though. Like they always had like the windows on the R or on the silver like fuselage looking spaceship and. The yeah, space people waving out. That's kind of what this is, you know. It is very, yeah. it's very cartoony, very comic booky. Yeah, 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 absolutely. They also didn't have the language to say that's a UFO. Like we would be, that's a, <laughs> no. you know, it's weird no. to think that we have the language to describe that experience now, whereas they did not. Yeah, exactly. They had they had flying saucer and uh, weird rockets and and like very inadequate language but yeah the, you, we wouldn't get you flying or UFOs until like a couple of years later but um, uh, you know there are some other crew members that see this uh, object there's one passenger on this plane that sees it like streaking off but uh, the object was spotted later at Robbins Air Force Base in Macon Georgia as it was passing overhead and um as Edward Ruppelt, uh, he was Project Blue Book's first uh, head, stated, uh, quote, according to the old timers at Attic, um, that's uh, Air Technical Intelligence uh, Center or Command, uh, this report shook them worse than the Mantell incident. So Thomas Mantell, uh, he was like the first casualty of the flying saucers. He would, attempted to chase one down over Kentucky. Uh, the only problem was he didn't have oxygen on board his plane, so he ended up uh, oh, dying. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, was, wow. Yeah. He, like, died of fascination. Yeah, basically, he yeah. he died, uh, you know, in, in total free fall. But uh, this was the first time two reliable sources had been really close enough to anything resembling a UFO to get a good look at it and live to tell about it. So... Uh, this is as close a close encounter at the time that you could get um, and mm. that they had documented to this point. So 
the incident prompted the Air Force to write uh, what is known as an estimate of the situation. And as Ruppelt put it, quote, in intelligence, if you have something to say about some vital problem, you write a report that is known as an estimate of the situation. A few days after the DC-3 was buzzed, the people at Attic decided that the time had arrived to make an estimate of the situation. The situation was the UFOs. The estimate was that they were interplanetary, end quote. That, uh, that's a hell of an estimate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Just by looking at it, they, that, I'm going to say it's aliens. <laughs> yeah. <All> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally aliens. Uh, so... Yeah, according to Ruppelt and others who support the document's existence, quote, it was a rather thick document with a black cover, and it was printed on legal size paper, stamped across it, uh, across the front were the the words, top secret. Oh, yeah, no, that's, that's how that's, you know. That's <laughs> such a scene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sliding across a stainless steel desk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, when the estimate was completed, typed, and approved, it started up through channels to higher command echelons. It drew considerable comment, but no one stopped it on its way up. Uh, the support eventually made its way to General Hoyt Vandenberg, the Air Force's chief of staff, where he promptly rejected it, citing a lack of evidence. And according to Ruppelt, quote, the estimate died a quick death. Some months later, it was completely declassified and relegated to the incinerator. A few <laughs> copies, one of which I saw, were kept as mementos of the golden days of the UFOs. <laughs> I mean, it sounds real fun. You know, <laughs> yeah. the old guy's yeah. like his mementos of his his best days and. That's a good one, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, there's only been rumors of this report. There's never been one that surfaced. There are, I would assume, like, two, three copies that ever probably existed past 1948, and Lord knows whatever happened to them. But many Air Force officials would go on to, like, deny the report's existence, though many, including Ruppelt, J. Allen Hynek, and Major Dewey Fournette, um, who would uh, be a prominent figure in uh, Project Blue Book's uh, uh, early year uh, before it was changed. Uh, they, they would state otherwise. They said it existed. So following the estimate, the sign was broken apart, it was restructured under Project Grudge, and Grudge was understaffed, given a new direct directive to explain away reports as misidentifications of natural or man-made objects. And you know, just try to make the phenomenon go away, which is um, it's it's foreshadowing what's going to happen here. But yeah, uh, uh, September 10th, 1951 uh, at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, a student radar operator was giving a demonstration of the equipment for the top military officials that were there. And when the radar picked up an object that was going faster than any jets, like they were kind of freaked out. And 25 minutes later, a T-33 jet trainer out of Dover Air Force Base in Maryland caught this disc-shaped object. It was silver in color on their radar and, and caught a visual of it, too, traveling at 900 miles per hour. So later that day, Fort Monmouth received a call about another target in the area that had been spotted and was now being tracked on radar, moving very slowly. And the next day, Major General Charles Cabell, who was the Director of Intelligence, 
phoned the chief of the Air Technical Intelligence Command to find out what had happened the day before. He wanted attic personnel on it immediately. Um, he wasn't really in the know about what Project Grudge was doing. He's just like, you know, I, I it needs to be done. I don't know what the full scale operation here is day to day now, but we need people out there. So they send out Lieutenant Jerry Cummings, who's the project head, and Lieutenant Colonel N.R. Rosengarten. And two days later, the two men briefed Cavill. And, quote, Cavill supposedly learned at this meeting that Grudge had effectively been dead for some time. He demanded to know who in, in hell has been giving me these reports that every decent flying saucer report is being investigated. He ordered the men to get moving and report to him when a new project was ready to go. <laughs> God love it. God love it. You know, I there's something I, there's something amazing about this type of dude being exposed to something no human can explain you know allegedly it's just like the, it's the most fun type of person to have to deal yeah. with it and figure it out yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so you know this leads to a big shakeup within the dod a lot of personnel changes general john samford replaces uh charles cabell as the director of intelligence and like He's kind of a fun guy. He um he kind of believes in aliens, but he's like really, you know, kind of shy and and like um he 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 likes to misdirect people and he's a, he's a really smart guy to do it. Uh and his aide was a man named General William Garland and he's painted as a serious guy when it comes to UFOs. Uh furthermore, Garland had seen a UFO himself, so he had he was totally on board with taking the subject as serious as possible. And at the Pentagon UFO desk was Major Dewey Fournette. Um, he's been described as a pro UFO, quote, I think they're aliens kind of thinker. So uh, That's it's thinker. kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a total thinker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, as it's put in UFOs and government, which is uh, really a, a textbook, if you decide to ever pick up this book, and I, I kind of regret <laughs> reading it <laughs> as much as I did because it broke my brain. But um, it's got a lot of useful information, but it's just dry as fuck. But, uh, quote, the main ingredient in all this had to be General Sanford's chief aide, General William Garland, whether Garland thought that there was any chance that UFOs were of extraterrestrial origin is not known. What Garland brought to this new environment was that he thought the UFO issue was important. Very important. End quote. I mean, uh, yeah, it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like, we don't know what that is. Yeah. That's, yeah. I'm trying to imagine like from, from the perspective of someone who thinks it's very important, like what they're, what their internal reaction is when their like superiors or colleagues just don't care. Because mm -hmm. if you think it's important, you've got to be like, I, I don't know. It might be aliens, might not be aliens, but it's weird. It's out there. We should know about that. And if you just see someone just be like, nah, it's probably birds or something, whatever. <laughs> That's got to be the most discouraging thing in the world. The real realization that there's no one at the helm, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're it's it's a rudderless ship right now, yeah. and it's just you know, 
if we don't pay attention to it, it's not a thing. Don't don't even worry about it. You know. Wait, aren't you just... the guys that just built the nuclear bomb? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the thing, guys. It's definitely a thing. Yeah, we're just uh, we're just sweeping things under the rug. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, for for Project Grudge, Attic, you know, had a new director too, and Colonel Frank Dunn. And the chief investigator of the project was now Captain Edward Ruppelt. Ruppelt was actually on the backup crew of the Enola Gay. So if the original pilots oh, wow. hadn't, yeah, if they hadn't been able to fly it, he would have been the one. So interesting. Yes, um, Ruppelt was serious as can be about this project, and he quickly whipped Grudge into as a, as efficient a project as it could be. One thing that Ruppelt did that nobody seemed to have thought of before was to make a sighting map of the United <laughs> States to see if there were any trends. They hadn't thought of that before. My God, he's like, a genius. Right. <laughs> it's it's a really simple thing, but like, you know, and then you got like Dave Politis making uh, basically a population density map and trying to make it seem serious. <laughs> right, right. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, um, you know, he did find some trends. Uh, Ruppelt found concentrations of sightings around White Sands and Los Alamos in New Mexico, Camp Hood mm. in Texas, which I believe went on to be, it is Fort Hood now, uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, and mm. uh, Dayton, Hawaii, Dayton, Ohio, uh, which coincidentally is where Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was located, um, which is also where project grudge was run out of so interesting that the the apparently the ufos are showing up just trying to get their attention right where they're studying this thing i, I think i'm starting to understand why he was the first dude to make a map out of all the sightings <laughs> right right <laughs> no it, it, it's just it's 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 baffling to me. But hey, when you don't take your work seriously, I I, I guess like one guy's leap to do something that nobody had ever done before can seem so incredible. Yeah. Or they just didn't want anyone knowing that it was all concentrated around, uh, you know, Air Force yeah. bases and laboratories. Yeah. Which basically. is curious. That's, a, that's just a little curious. Yeah, I don't know. Just, just a bit, <laughs> just a bit. But I mean, like, you know, it, it's it's just you know that's what you find in the data. That's just what's there. But uh, you know, now Grudge operating under the new idea that their investigation should be open minded, but not open to the public. Mm. Make that clear. Their first test of this policy would be, would occur in January of 1952, just a few months after Ruppelt had assumed the role. On the evening of January 29th, on the Korean War front uh, near Wonsan, a, a B-29 crew spotted a small orange-colored disc flying alongside their plane. And it drew closer for a, a brief period of time, and then it just darted away. And a short time later, another B-29 crew observed a similar phenomenon. So we're on the war front. We've got UFOs here. It's pretty freaking weird. Uh, yeah. 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 I've never heard of uh, UFO sightings in the Korean War before. That's why there's there's one uh, involving a guy named Francis Wall who uh, came forward to QFOS like 30 years after the war. And mm. uh, he claimed that his troop 
was uh, they were stationed just outside of a like a village or something like that. And they were about to bombard it. And they mm. see this object come over this village and it just hovers there. And then they decide to like start shooting it. And it turns out that the UFO didn't like that and uh, actually returned fire on them to the point where oh. um, they they had to take refuge in kind of like a bunker. And it turned out like a lot of the guys ended up like really sick. They had high white cell oh, wow. counts. Yeah, it was it was supposedly really bad. But like that's one story that came out of the Korean War front. Wild. What kind of fire did it return? Not to get sidetracked, but that's just that's it's crazy. Like a, it was like a really intense kind of orange beam of light. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, kind of your very like sci-fi-ish kind of response, you know? Yeah. I, I was thinking of like, oh, that's where that comes from, too. Yeah. You know, yep. Everything does come from somewhere. Oh, shit. It turns out they shoot beams of light. All right. Yep. So... The report was immediately sent to the Pentagon Intelligence and forwarded on to the desk of Grudge. Uh, the case immediately caused a stir in the Pentagon. And soon General Garland was quizzing Dewey Fournette on the case. And Ruppelt immediately requested more information from the Far Eastern Air Force, which uh, were investigating the matter. In an excerpt from Wright-Patterson's engineering department, Peter A. Strangis was asked for his expertise on the case. Quote, the times that the object or objects followed the B-29s uh, indicate that the objects were propelled by some means, which eliminated the possibility of an underground or an unguided ground-to-air missile, drop missiles, etc. The color and shape of the flame could have been could have been the exhaust of a conventional jet engine with or without an afterburner, a pulse jet, ramjet, or rocket engine. None of these possibilities were considered to be applicable. So. They didn't know what this was, but Strangest would go on to equate the phenomenon experience to that of the, uh, he called them the fireball fighters of World War II, but uh, mm. we would call them the Foo Fighters. Um, uh, Dave Grohl was flying right, through right. the air back yeah. then, you know? I picture that way too easily. <laughs> right. Like Dave Grohl Dave flying Grohl. through the air with like a halo of light. Yeah. Oh, Dave, Dave Grohl was a menace during World War II. <laughs> he was just the absolute worst. <laughs> But, uh, oh, you know, man. Rupert, he would pass along all this information to the Pentagon, who then in turn leaked it to the press. Um, no one is sure who leaked it, but many speculate that it was General Garland himself, as Fournette didn't really believe in leaking information to the press. And he was pretty much the only other person that could have done it. So either way, all of this led to Fournette's office and Rupelt being swamped by press inquiries, badgering them, badgering from top Washington officials like they were getting it from all sides. So, like, whoever leaked this did not think it through. Um, yeah, that's like their that's got to be like their worst nightmare. Yeah. Uh, Tuesday, yeah. you just have to defend what you've been up to yeah. regarding the UFO problem. Good God. <laughs> yeah. Bad so. Tuesday. Yeah, that's that's a bad Tuesday right there. Um, but uh, to remove the negative stigma associated with UFOs, Grudge decided it was finally time to change their name. So Ever Ruppelt went with Blue Book, inspired by the examination booklets he was familiar with from his college days at Iowa State University. Um, and all the, every one of these names, it like it it sounds like 
like a Japanese fighting game. Every one of these UFO <laughs> project sign, project grudge, blue book. Like those are those are anime names. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, but that's that's what it is. It's cool. I'm down. Yeah, good names. Yeah, it's funny though. Yes, <laughs> it really is. Uh, strangely, none of the publicity of the Korean sightings actually led to more uh, reports coming into Blue Book from civilians or anything, which is kind of hmm. weird because um, yeah. you figure, hey, you, you've got a little more exposure on your UFO project. You figure some people would report more. But um, regardless, they had their hands full with the reports that it did, that they did have. So... Its staff grew to include Rupelt, four lieutenants, two airmen, two civilians, uh, one of whom was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who had been involved on Project Sign as kind of the astronomical consultant, and he was brought back in to do that again because um, Rupelt actually looked at some of the old Project Sign files, and he did not like uh, some of the things that uh, J. Allen Hynek had uh, determined for certain cases. Like, <laughs> uh, uh, he made him go back over the Mantell case because uh, their initial determination was that he was chasing Venus, you know? So, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So he comes back in and he says, oh, no, he was chasing a balloon. It was a balloon, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but we got it right this time. Don't worry. Um but by the summer, sightings were at an all-time high. June saw 149 reports, uh, while uh, they received uh, 536 reports in July. And um, I believe 1952, uh, if you look at um, the uh, kind of breakdown of unknown cases in Blue Book's history. The vast majority of them came from 1952. It was like over 303 cases that remained unexplained. So it was a, it was a busy time. It was a busy time. 52 you know? and 53 were some weird years. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've got Jack Parsons' death right in uh, June 1952. Yep. Um, a couple months later, that's when uh, the, the whole saga with the nine starts in January uh, mm -hmm. 53. It's, uh, everyone thinks 50s are born. Some leave it to beaver bullshit. No, no, it was weird as no. hell. Yeah. No, no, not, not, not only that, you have like the origins of MK Ultra and right, like, about yeah. 53. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the most important reports of uh, the month of July came from a naval warrant officer named Delbert C. Newhouse uh, on July 2nd. While vacationing in Tremonton, Utah, he captured a formation of strange objects in the sky using a 16 millimeter Bell and Howell movie camera. Uh, he it, kind of amazing, you know. He was um, he observed these out of his car window, and he pulled over his vehicle to get a better look at them. And uh, he uh, described them. They were quote large, disc shaped, and brightly lighted. He further stated that they were, quote, shaped like two saucers, one inverted on top of the other. So hmm. Newhouse was able to capture about 75 seconds of footage uh, and it showed about 12 to 14 objects kind of maneuvering over in the sky. Like it's it's an interesting piece of footage um, that's out there on YouTube and that I'll, uh, I forgot to show you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's like uh, it's if I can describe it for you, you got sure. a blue sky. Yeah. There's a bunch of white objects in the sky. You can't you can't really make out what they are, but like 
there are moments where they're making kind of unusual movements in the sky. They're not birds. They're not planes. They're, you know, they seem to be like stationary for a period of time while others like, you know, start moving around. So it's it's very unusual. It's not, you know, what you would expect from like birds or anything like that. So it's it's an interesting piece of footage. But um Film was immediately sent to Blue Book, who had a screening for several high-ranking intelligence officers. And uh, it was reviewed by the Navy's uh, Photographic uh, Interpretation Center. And their conclusion was, it wasn't birds. Not birds. Um, So, and and I mean, they watched this thing for hours. Like, I think they put about a thousand hours into watching this. And, um, like, the sightings would just keep on rolling but like when you have video footage you know in an age where video footage is not really a thing you know like it's just yeah it's not definitely happening. not ubiquitous that's mm-hmm. a definitely a stroke of luck that that dude was rolling by there and had a camera yeah totally totally lucky There was a sighting three days later over the uh, Hanford Atomic Plant in Washington, which prompted a flurry of press inquiries about UFOs over nuclear facilities. Um, And then there was a sighting called the Nash Fortenberry sighting, which drew a lot of public interest. And this is where Blue Book kind of really started to falter a bit because they failed tremendously to investigate this case. So William Nash and William Fortenberry, the two Williams, were flying a Pan Am DC-4 to Miami. And as they approached Norfolk, Virginia, a red-orange light caught their attention. And soon they manifested, this light manifested into six disc-shaped mm. objects in an echelon formation flying just below a plane's altitude. So uh, for anybody listening, uh, when you think of an echelon formation, just think of like the risers of a stairs. Like that's how these planes were, these objects were flying, you know, one uh, after the other kind of slightly above the uh, the one in front of it. But okay. Um, when they were close to the underside of this plane, all the objects stopped midair, rolled on the air edges, and shuffled their position so that they were facing the opposite direction. And once they were in their new position, the formation just raced away, and two other objects actually emerged from the bottom of the plane and took off in the same direction. So it, it did a magic trick in the air, and it made two more. You know? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Like, I'm picturing, like, you know, just, like, some lame magician at a birthday party just, like, pulling two <laughs> UFOs out of a hat or something. But doesn't... <laughs> the UFOs kind of seem like lame magicians a lot of times. It has that, like... There's a cheap quality to the impossible bullshit that it pulls off. I yeah. appreciate, but I don't know. It has that vibe. A cheap it, it, magician at a birthday party. It really does. <laughs> they are, the UFOs, the cheap magicians at the birthday party in the sky. Um, it, that's that's what they are. And uh, yeah, like uh, you can see them wobble from time to time. And like it's it's not very pretty sight. But you know what? They they're doing the best with what they have. <laughs> but God bless uh, yeah, really. God bless them. Uh, 
Nash and Fort Berry were questioned immediately by Air Force personnel about their sighting, but the case was promptly buried under the volume of reports that month. And instead, it just kind of became the sensation in the press, like they were talking to everybody. But July 1952 is particularly known for a pair of UFO incidents that would come to be known as the Washington Merry-Go-Round, as Rupelt dubbed it, which is the worst name for it that you could really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just yeah. a bad name. Like, like, you know, the blue book thing I was down with, but the Washington yeah, Merry-Go-Round. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> oh, that's a politics type of name, which is just the worst names for, yeah. for things. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right on that. Um, that summer, the Air Force had allegedly enacted a policy to engage these objects. At least that's what UFOs and government told me. But, you know, there's no kind of official policy on record stating that. But there are some people that said, hey, there was a policy in place to engage these objects. So, yeah, I, I feel like you need at least like a couple bullet points to have a policy mm -hmm. like other. Yeah. Can I see the memo, oh, no, please? A I, need a memo. Yeah. I, I need a memo. I need a memo. Uh, so according to an interview with uh, Jay Nogle in 1967, he had been a radar specialist at McGuire Air Force Base in 1952, just 130 miles north of Washington, D.C. And throughout the months of May, June and July, unknown targets were being picked up on a nightly basis. And at times Damn. they would travel in excess of 1000 miles per hour uh, and they would just like come to an abrupt stop and just like hover there so these are some you know pretty intense ufos here you know doing some really really gnarly stuff yeah they're doing the whole thing mm -hmm. showing up all the time a thousand miles an hour and then just stopping mm -hmm. just very yep. clearly just breaking the rules yeah nice. like in, and like you know if you're sitting at that radar desk you know that like somebody's got to say what a show off like seriously what a show off because yeah, they are for sure <laughs> <laughs> the ufos are show-offs they just are you know um, especially if you're like assuming it's some somebody else's technology or or someone else yeah. it has to look like that like a yeah intimidation <laughs> tactics and shit oh yeah. yeah oh yeah absolutely uh According to Rupelt in his book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, uh, while in D.C. on a trip, he was told by a member of the intelligence community that they had been plotting and tracking UFO events and their findings pointed to an increased uh, inactivity on the East Coast that they believed would climax in Washington, D.C. And you know what? He was right. Oh, wow. Because I was going to say, like, what, what criteria, what could possibly make you think that it was going to climax in Washington, D.C. Right. Like, how... What's... Are they just getting closer and closer? More concentrated? What's going on here? Right. Uh, and that's an, and that's the thing with Rupelt. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell yeah. us. Yeah. I'm, I'm suspicious of that whole anecdote. Yeah, you There's should something be. something weird there. <laughs> you should be. Your cockles should be up in this case. Oh, like, they're up. If, yeah. They're raised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like... Gotta be. Uh, but uh, yeah, 20, 20 minutes to midnight, July 18th. <laughs> Edward Nugent. You don't say. <laughs> An the air Nuge traffic himself? controller. <laughs> the Nuge is at the desk. He's sitting there with a bottle of Jim Beam, two revolvers, and his guitar controlling the air traffic. 
That's what he yeah. did. That's why he was he was writing all those songs. Yeah, so, Ted yeah. Nugent. Yeah, yeah. Back in '52 <laughs> uh, at Washington National Airport, uh, he picked up seven objects on radar moving in a strange pattern. Uh, so Nugent called over his crew chief Harry Barnes. "Quote: We knew immediately that a very strange situation existed." <laughs> Just to word it like that. Okay. Um, their, their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. They followed no set course, were not in any formation, and we only seemed to be able to track them for about three minutes at a time. The individual pip would seem to disappear from the scope at intervals. Later, I realized that if these objects made any sudden bursts of extremely high speed, that would account for them disappearing from the scope temporarily, end quote. Um, so, yeah, there's some weird stuff going on on these radars, man. Just, like, absolutely weird. And, you know, these returns, they were kind of weak at first, but all checks of the equipment showed that uh, the unit was functioning properly. Uh, next, they contacted Howard Conklin, who uh, was operating a different set of equipment on the same property. He, too, was picking up these returns. Uh, they also had visual sightings of these objects, as well as uh, a, an unnamed tower operator who had also seen them. But at midnight, the objects were spotted moving close to the White House and Capitol building, prompting Harry Barnes to contact Andrews Air Force Base, where base personnel spotted the objects. Every time they were spotted visually, they were described as orange-colored balls of light. Um, mm. So, you know, not totally solid objects, but just, like, very bright lights. And that orange color has been pretty consistent through a lot of these. Yeah. That's, yep. yeah. Yep. Um between midnight and 1 a.m., several objects were spotted along the East Coast. So that that member of the intelligence community was absolutely right. Like on this evening, all throughout the East Coast, there were objects spotted everywhere. Mm. So weird. Yeah, it's 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 very weird. Um, it's weird. It's just it's just weird, dude. It's <laughs> weird. <laughs> In D.C., Captain Pierman, a Capital Airlines pilot, was told by Washington National that a group of objects were zeroing in on his position. Quote, Captain Pierman described them as bright blue balls of light, six in number, mm. hovering sometimes and rapidly moving at others. Um, meanwhile, radar operators all over D.C. were tracking objects. In one case, these objects were clocked at around 7,100 miles per hour. So, Damn. yeah, like... Can I get me one of them, please? That'd be great. Yeah. So between 2 and 3 a.m., Andrews Air Force Base were tracking and visually confirming just like a ton of objects from their towers. And at one point, an object was tracked simultaneously between the National Airport and two bases. Like, uh, they're getting kind of confirmation everywhere. And before long, there were two interceptors that uh, were attempting to give chase of these objects, but they would just disappear uh, until the planes would leave. Um, and uh, here's a quote from Harry Barnes, which was carried in the newspapers. Quote, The only recognizable behavior pattern which occurred to me from watching the objects was that they acted like a bunch of small kids out playing. It was helter-skelter, as, as if directed by some innate curiosity. At times, they moved as a group or cluster. At other times, as individuals over widely scattered areas. And, and I think what's interesting about that quote is, like, 
when you attribute like human characteristics to UFOs, it's it's always interesting to me. Like, yeah, it's like a kid. Yeah, and especially in like the context of thinking of UFOs as you know, quote spaceships. It's it's interesting when people describe them as the beings themselves. Exactly, That's always like, really fascinating. Yes, absolutely. As if they are animals in their own right. So right. Um, I could safely declare that they could make right angle turns and completely reverse their flight. I'm positive they were guided by some intelligence. If no places were in the air, the things would fly over the most likely points of interest. Andrews Field, the aircraft plant at Riverdale, the Washington Monument, or the Capitol. One or two circled our radio beacons, but as soon as an airliner took off, several would dart across and start to follow as if to look it over, end quote. So, mm-hmm. yeah, very childlike in the way it's presented and um, yeah. just very interesting, you know? An innocent, an innocent curiosity is yes. the vibe from that, yeah. So from the outset, President Truman was concerned about these sightings and had asked his military advisor, General Landry, to look into the matter. And meanwhile, Ruppelt, Colonel Bauer and Dewey Fournette, they were just kind of struggling to get things under control. There was a fury in the press, so much so that an attache at the Soviet embassy was attacked by a reporter accusing the Russians of putting technology over American skies. Oh, that... In in contrast, uh, that was that Russian's. That was a great Tuesday for that Russian. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, and it absolutely was. Um, it was as if the UFOs had known that they had caused so much dissension when they returned the following weekend. So, oh. yeah, eight fifteen uh, on the evening of the twenty sixth. Captain Burkow of National Airlines witnessed several objects approaching him from a higher altitude. Uh, the captain and uh, the stewardess both watched as a group of orange-red objects flew directly over their plane. At 8.22 p.m., Washington National and Andrews Air Force Base both had 12 unknown objects on their radar screens and at times were visually confirmed. And between 9.15 and 9.30 p.m., a B-25 was vectored to an area where the objects were being picked up, uh, but the plane just couldn't see them for some strange reason, you know? Hmm. Um, the press, uh, what made this a little different is that the press was hot on this to the point where they were, like, invading these radar towers to... Oh, no. Yeah, to, to really be, you know, up to date on what was going on. And Edward Ruppelt was actually informed by a writer from Life magazine of what was going on. Like, he was not even in the know at the time as to what was going oh on. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they were just, they weren't doing a good job, were they? No. 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 <laughs> uh, the, the the main problem is, is that they were just overwhelmed with reports and they yeah. didn't know how to handle them. They couldn't, they couldn't handle them fast enough. So, you know... When you're kind of swamped like that, it's bound to happen. But, uh, you know, uh, all this shit's breaking loose. Uh, And there's a a radar expert named Holcomb who was sent to radar stations to actually check on the systems to make sure that they were working. And they appeared to be working just fine. You know, the activity just kind of kept 
uh, going on uh, up until midnight and even after. Some radar and visual sightings were made between 10 and 11 p.m. At 10.46, a CAA flight instructor um, saw five orange balls of light, um, though a few minutes later, all radar returns just kind of stopped after the visual sighting was made. Um, by 11.22, they were back, though. Two jets were in the air at the time, including uh, one from uh, Lieutenant W.L. Patterson's, uh, who's pushed his plane to close in on these objects. Um, suddenly, they approached his plane. Like, this isn't an official report on Blue Book's files, but hmm. he later came forward saying that these objects approached his plane, surrounded it, um, all the oh, while boy. appearing on radar... And for like a few frightening moments, he's just like deadlocked with these objects around him. And then they just darted away. Oh, he had to have been shitting his pants. Yes. He, like, his his pants <laughs> smell so bad right yeah, now. They, <laughs> Look, that's terrifying. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's is not good. Is not good. But uh, two days after the second round of objects appeared in the skies over D.C., a press conference was held by General John Sanford in an effort to calm the press down over these sightings. The only problem was is that the other voice there was Donald Kehoe, who like was a complete like believer in aliens and stuff like that. You know, Major <laughs> Donald Kehoe retired from the military. He's like, I don't care anymore. They're aliens. <laughs> They're aliens in the sky. Damn it. It's a great third act. You know? <laughs> it is it is <laughs> but, but like um you know samford there he's he's playing po coy with the press he's like giving them runarounds uh his it, like to hear the man talk he's the kind of guy that'll put in like 10 extra words in a sentence just to kind of bore you <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i've noticed like military dudes are they're good at that trick yes they have to yeah. just talk about something sensitive that just they make it boring. I don't know how they do it. It's, it's yep. real uh, it's talent. But uh, yeah, he, he played with them a bit, but he did make one interesting statement. Um, quote, however, there have rem remained a percentage of this total in the order of 20% of the reports. And you can get the kind of idea of how he talks here uh, that have come from credible observers <laughs> of relatively incredible things. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Just because completely non-committal and yes, yes. <sighs> Just like, hey, there's there's been some stuff, but I'm gonna put in a bunch of boring stuff in there beforehand, so that you don't think anything suspicious at all. Yeah, it's like that yeah. th that thing at like zoos, or I don't know why I'm remembering it at a zoo, but like the funnel where you roll a coin that goes down and it spins around <laughs> and all the way down to the kind of like a, a, a flushing toilet, except it just never stops. That's how these guys. <laughs> talk they're just <laughs> continually circling around the drain forever and ever yeah you know <sighs> it's uh, it, it is it is infuriating uh and this this last bit of garbage is not going to make sense at all uh and because of those things not being possible for us to move along and associate with the kind of things that we've found <laughs> can be associated with the bulk of these reports we keep on being concerned about them <laughs> That is a sentence that one man uttered. I, I'm not kidding. You know what? That takes a hell of a lot of skill to actually come up with that sentence. Yes. Say so many things without saying anything at all. Yes. 
yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's true skill that associate with the kind of things that we found can be associated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Just uh brilliant stonewalling. I, I absolutely love it. Um so Sanford tried to avoid giving an answer to what had happened. But when pushed into a corner, stated that he believed the sightings were caused by temperature inversions. Um, and, and a temperature inversion, for for those that don't know, is when a uh, pocket of warm air is trapped, uh, you know, high up in the atmosphere. Or not even relatively high up in the atmosphere, between two layers of cold air. That's all it is. Mm. So, and and it had been known to kind of mess with radar. So, um. They had reported uh, temperature inversions kind of like every day, but uh, there was no evidence indicating that temperature inversions were responsible for these particular sightings. But uh, the straw that finally broke Blue Book's, you know, first year investigation was a kind of a series of uh, cases, like disturbing cases that followed. Uh, including the Sunny Divergers Florida Scoutmaster case. Sunny Divergers, uh, kind of the Cliff's notes on this case. Um, he was driving some boys uh, that uh, he was he was a um, he was a scoutmaster driving some boys back to um, their house uh, after meeting, and he sees what he believes is kind of like uh, a plane that had come down in the Everglades. So he basically decided to go in see what was going on told these boys hey if i'm not back in a certain period of time go get help well he didn't come back uh and uh these boys went for help came back with the police and they later found him kind of um i don't uh, he was like stark raving mad like he had a machete with him because you you know to get through the 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 brush and stuff but like he was crazy claiming that he had been zapped by a ufo um oh my uh, yeah uh Rupert called it like the one of the greatest hoaxes ever committed because uh sunny divergers wasn't like kind of a um he wasn't a very honest person but there's an interesting piece of evidence in this case the um the grass um was actually singed underneath the ground and not on top oh yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, the um, the other kind of two cases, the uh, Flatwoods Monster case was kind of a big one around this time. Mm-hmm. And um, like the Air Force didn't investigate the monster itself. They investigated kind of the quote unquote meteor that they thought uh, had right, right. Uh, been streaking across the sky beforehand. But uh, um, the other one is uh, is an interesting case. Uh, a case called um, associated with a NATO exercise called Operation Main Brace, in which um, uh, NATO nations were doing this exercise. Um, I want to say it was in the Atlantic, and they actually witnessed a USO come out of the water and speed off. Mm. So, um, yeah. Um, so, needless to say, Harry Truman, he was a little concerned. It's a little. A little freaked out. Oh, yeah. Harry fucking Truman. Yeah. <laughs> so what does Harry Truman do? He, he goes to the CIA. He wants the CIA oh, involved. That's exactly what Harry Truman's going to do. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. He trusts. He, trust, he, he knows they can take care of things. He He's a busy guy. He can't do. Just someone please tell this man what to do. <laughs> Harry Harry Truman is the living embodiment of a man too busy to do anything, so he's gonna he's gonna delegate it to somebody else. Like yeah. he has the look of that kind of person. <laughs> he was just a hat salesman, and then he dropped a <laughs> nuclear bomb. Yeah, it's ridiculous. He's a ridiculous person. He is. Uh. He is. Um, but. Uh, he desperately wanted to know how to proceed with the UFO problem, and he didn't think Blue Book had the answer for it. So director Walter Bedell Smith, um, at this time, he's the main director of the CIA. You have Alan Dulles, who is the mm-hmm. associate director of the CIA, who is a complete piece of shit. Um, oh. Just an absolute human <laughs> yeah. pile of garbage. Him that and his brother. Monster. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. So they immediately give this problem to the Office of Scientific Intelligence within the CIA, where a quote-unquote special study group was put together to tackle the UFO problem. So initially, OSI wanted to include MIT's Lincoln Lab on the panel. And the Lincoln Lab was primarily concerned with developing technologies for the sake of national security. And in particular... They were interested in the vulnerabilities in our skies, uh, and and they worked with the government uh, back in the um, back in World War Two, trying to solve that problem. Uh, They were uh, big on radar uh, and using radar, which is funny because, like, uh, ultimately, um, the CIA would um, basically say that radar was unreliable. So, um, you know, uh, the early history of what would come to be known as the Robertson panel is the boring story of memos. It's memos. <laughs> it's all memos, people. <laughs> uh, there is, I literally skimmed through 10 pages of memos. Yeah, I, I mean, that's where all this shit plays out. It's all I, in memos. I, it is. It is. It's like literally people going back and forth thinking, you know, how do we do this? Like, how do we uh, who do we get for our panel? All this stuff. Um, the most important memo was sent on September 7th by assistant director of OSI, Marshall Chadwell, who uh, viewed the Air Force's efforts to study the UFO problem as admirable but inadequate. Uh, there was partisanship all throughout the field. And to deal with this problem, the Air Force would have to get on the same page. What he's basically saying is, like, there are people in the Air Force that believe that, uh, you know, UFOs are either a um, misidentifications of things or they're aliens. Like, there's really, you know, that's kind of the extremes here (laughs) is that they're misidentifications of things or they're aliens. That's how the book made me feel. It's like the, yeah. there's only two options, you know? It's just that's just not true. No. You know? There's there's a lot of in between. There's, there's a lot of yeah, in between. There's a ton there. of in between. <laughs> yeah. Totally is. Totally is. Um more importantly, Chadwell believed that the solution to the UFO problem was, quote, just beyond the frontiers of our present knowledge, meaning that UFOs were per, purely a natural phenomenon. Which I can kind of understand to a certain extent with certain things. Like when you think of like the Hesdalen lights, Hey, that's uh that's beyond our natural yeah. scope. You know, that's something else. Um, but like, yeah. 
when they're metallic objects, that's it's it's a little curious, you know. That's uh, I think that's beyond the scope of natural phenomena. <laughs> yeah, unless you're like trying to be a a smart ass about it, and you could say like, oh well, so that radar tower is a a natural object since humans are natural and we built it. It's like okay, shut up. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, so it's, it's fine. You can you can be technically correct here if you yes. want. But. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chadwell also emphasized the failures of radar operators from being able to distinguish hardware problems from phantoms. So, Chadwell, not a not a big believer in in radar. He, it was he, it was like pretty new technology at the time. Yeah, no, like, it, it was it absolutely was, and like uh, it's, you know, still trying to figure things out. But yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. About a month later, Chadwell put together the panel. And basically, he he uh, got one guy, and that guy got some other guys, uh, you know, to come onto this panel. Um, the f- the first guy they got was uh, Howard P. Bob Robertson, the the man who is n- the panel is named after. Uh, he's a math ma- mathematical physicist from Caltech, uh, and con- he's been a consultant for the CIA. Um, he's the main chair of this this circus um is is does does the bob come from robertson i i'm, I'm assuming so i that's like, whack yeah yeah i don't like, know about that <laughs> <laughs> i really i don't know about that <laughs> like it, you could tell it like if a man's nickname is coming from his last name you know uh, it's a little he suspicious just, here a little suspicious just really didn't want to be howie no, he didn't. He didn't. I mean, I get it, but you can't just let let the Bobs have Bob, man. They're the yeah. only ones. Look, yeah. let me have my thing. You know, I don't need. I yeah. don't need that. I don't need some nerd like this up in my shit. Like, let me have my name, damn it. <laughs> um, Robertson is the kind of guy who would say the term Fortean with pure derision in his voice, uh, and he liked mm. to just shit on that term like as often as he could um oh like he would literally just say 40 and with derision in his voice a lot yes he would oh, wow, he okay. literally would uh uh i i think it was um heinick or rupelt that said that he would just like you know have like this vile tone every time he said it. <laughs> yeah ever, ever since a, a a fish fell on his head when he was a kid he just couldn't take it anymore no it's no because he could no 40 in for him <laughs> <laughs> like fish and then like after that it was frogs and like you know yeah. it, it's so confusing after that it's just so confusing um uh, robertson then shows dr thornton page uh, an astrophysicist from the university of chicago uh and a researcher from the naval ordnance lab during world war ii so he had the clearance he was good um later the panel would be rounded out by dr samuel goutsmith uh, an atomic physicist from Brookhaven National Labs, uh, Dr. Luis Alvarez, a radiation physicist from the University of California, Berkeley, and Dr. Lloyd Berkner, an atmospheric physicist from the Carnegie Institution, who showed up two and a half days after the panel convened. <laughs> Lloyd. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fashionably late. Yeah, totally fashionably late. And you know what's interesting is like, there's footage out there of Heineck giving an interview 
and being like totally enamored with all these people. And like he's, he's like they kind of ruined my they kind of ruined my career, but like I was in total <laughs> all of it. <laughs> oh, God damn you, Heine! You know you're he's the best. He really is. Um, from the start, Luis Alvarez and Samuel Goutsmit were kind of reluctant to join the panel, and I don't. And you could tell how Lloyd Bergner felt about things. <laughs> You know. I didn't care. No, was, no, yeah. no. Uh, you know, and aside from the panel members, uh, other figures from the CIA and Air Force were present, including Marshall Chadwell, that piece of shit, uh, Dewey Fournette, Edward Ruppelt, and Dr. J. Allen Hynek. The emphasis of this meeting was national security and what threat UFOs posed to it. Quote, There were some preliminary sarcastic remarks made by some of the panel, which were quickly silenced by a stern Bob Robertson. Like, I can't even take him seriously, that name. (laughs) It's ruined. It's ruined. Damn it. Um, (laughs) Who told them to shut up and take the job seriously. (laughs) You can't, Bob. You can't. So, in particular, Philip Strong emphasized, quote, enemy induction of mass hysteria in the general population. An excited public clogging uh, information channels with UFO reports and false sightings leading to the military letting their guard down. It'd be impressive if someone pulled that off, I guess. Right? I don't know. That's a super paranoid thing to jump to, though. I guess it could be. mm. Mm Mm-hmm. There... (laughs) Yeah, that dude's a little jumpy, I'm going to say. Yeah, he's uh, he's uh, jumping to conclusions. He's that guy in office space on that jump to conclusions, Matt. That's what he's doing right now. He's yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the panel chose a small handful of the 1500 case reports and Blue Books files. They dismissed things in general without discussion at times and dismissed the idea that there were some patterns in the phenomenon. Um Experts were brought in to speak on these matters, basically, you know, the Blue Book personnel, Rupelt and Heineck. They gave presentations on specific cases uh, and the function of Attic. Uh, Dewey Fournette spoke on the the Tremonton, Utah film. And uh, Heineck introduced the term nocturnal meandering lights during his presentation. This is like Heineck's first contribution into like the categorization of ufos um basically mm. when you see a a strange light in the sky it's a nocturnal meandering light that's what that means um it's another boring name it, it like <laughs> dry I think it's, as possible well i mean you know he's he's a scientist what i like i get it i definitely get it <laughs> like uh, that's why i yeah no one pays me to name anything so maybe they should that's why maybe they should but (laughs) no Uh, at least not them at least not cia that's (laughs) um uh no like uh i I want everybody right now i want you to go to sequoia for your naming needs like this needs to happen no please do dude i can't even pick i can't even pick like usernames or screen names i just like use my i'm like i'm legitimately bad at naming things Duh. 
So I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm talking with an unearned sense of superiority over these fine gentlemen. That's the kind of <laughs> that's the kind of guy you want naming things, folks. So hit him up with Actually, it. Actually, that that's true though. <laughs> See. <laughs> Um, so here is a Heineck quote about the viewing of the film, quote, the viewing of the two films is the incident which remains by far the most vivid in my mind, the rather informal attitude at the time. The men had left their austere positions around the conference table and were sort of crouching around and leaning over each other's shoulders watching the film. There was a whole interplay of comments. Not exactly wisecracks, but, well, it certainly looks like a seagull to me, and you can't convince me that that's not birds. It's gotta be birds. And words to that effect. Some people expressed a little dismay at the Tremonton films that they didn't realize that birds could reflect that much, and someone would say, <laughs> oh yes, if the light's right, sun's right. And I believe I mentioned that the change in light was too rapid for it to be birds in flight, but that got nowhere, end quote. <laughs> This whole thing has like such a like a, a frat house vibe to it. Like I have this scene of these these guys smoking, drinking whiskey, like leaning on each other's shoulders, being like, ah, it's birds. Ah, yeah, of course it's birds. And just like, yeah, it's mm. yeah. It's Sinister bad. or stupid. Right. Right. Jerry's kind of out here. We're, we're, yeah, you know? honestly. Yeah. Uh, the final report was written on the evening of the 16th. Uh, it's after four days, uh, or yeah, after four days of, of this stuff by Bob Robertson himself. God damn that name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to quote UFOs and government, quote, the final report reads like two separate documents. One abruptly dismisses the phenomenon itself in opposition to almost every expert witness brought in to testify. And one half worries about how to control the public, end quote. <sighs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Um, this is like getting into very icky territory here. Um, the panel's concept yeah. of a broad educational program integrating efforts of all concerned agencies was that it should have two major aims, training and debunking. The debunking program amounted to a very extensive and specific set of actions aimed at manipulating the public's mind and emotions. The debunking aim would result in reduction in public interest in flying saucers, which today evokes a strong psychological reaction. This education could be accomplished by mass media, such as television, motion pictures, and popular articles. Hold on. They mm. wanted to... Use television, motion pictures, and popular articles to reduce the public's interest mm -hmm. in flying saucers? Uh, yeah. Um, oh, so stupid then. That's, it's, yeah, that's, that did, that did the opposite. Mm -hmm. That's, how could they ever think that that would reduce public interest? I mean, I guess this type of mass media kind of new and stuff, but that's, mm. but I don't know. But Sequoia, what if I told you they got Walter Cronkite and Disney? <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, that'll, <laughs> that'll do it. So, <laughs> the two-point plan. Blue Book would have to change its tactics, suggesting plausible explanations for UFOs to the witnesses instead of being open-minded entirely. Um, and two, use the media to change the public's mind about UFOs. Walter Cronkite hosted a special about UFOs that... Uh, really aim to debunk them. Um, they, there is um, 
there is a piece of video video footage alleged that the guy that the Air Force wanted to bring to Disney to have them host a special that this footage depicted an a, a UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base. They were claiming mm-hmm. that it was legit and that they wanted Disney to broadcast this. Never happened, but um, a, a guy named Robert Emenager got his hands on this footage and claims that it's legit. Like that, it was like twenty years later, but claims uh, that it, he got his hands on this footage. It's legit, you know. Like this is like one of the like interesting conspiracies within the UFO subculture that just kind of it's out there, you know. If you want to, if you want to use it, you know, if you want to um, yeah, consider yeah. it, yeah. The panel further concludes that the continued emphasis on the reporting of these phenomenon does, in these perilous times, result in a threat to the orderly functioning of the protective organs of the body top politic, end quote. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't like anyone who wrote that sentence. It's just... Uh, that I mean... That's that that's that shit that like Alan Dulles was like obsessed with. Mm-hmm. You know, the protective organs of the body body politic. Like that just ugh, obsession with like control of the orderly functioning of society is just like it's gross. It's gross and that's a gross sentence. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. It's pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty. Um attic personnel would go through a big shakeup. General Garland, Edward Ruppelt, and Dewey Fournette were all out, replaced by people who hated UFOs. And Blue Book largely went about downplaying UFO reports. Like, if you look at Blue Book from 53 to about 64, it's pretty unremarkable. Like, there, there, isn't a lo- there aren't a lot of cases there that, like, capture the imagination because they were all pretty Mm. much downplayed um things started to change in 64 with the Lonnie Zamora incident um just because like he's such he was such a reliable witness at the time his sighting was kind of corroborated by other people and um the physical evidence in that case you know made it clear that something happened um granted don't know really what happened but um the big shakeup, though, occurred in 1966. So in March of 1966, a few UFO incidents took place in Michigan that caused this kind of big controversy. Um, and, and I covered these incidents. Um, they're known as the Dexter Hillsdale incidents uh, in episode 110. But uh, here's the here's the Cliff's notes. Um, it all started on the evening of March 14th. Um, 1966, the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department, uh, they were, they would be flooded with calls of unusual objects in the night sky, uh, and deputies, this is the best name ever, <laughs> Buford Bush, Bushrow, you know, that the, the best yes. name ever. Yeah. Um, and John Foster, they cited this kind of red and green colored object at around four in the morning while investigating a traffic accident. Um, and shortly after that, uh, similar object joined that one and they kind of just flew in formation off together. And throughout the week, many counties in Michigan would report UFO sightings. Um, they would ultimately culminate on the evenings of March 20th and March 21st 
On the 20th, Frank Manor uh, observed a strange kind of pyramidal-shaped object in a swamp on his property. Um, and, and the police also later kind of observed it as it was taking off. Um, uh, and then the next day night at uh, Hillsdale College, which is an all-women's uh, college, over 80 female students watched an object for a number of hours in a swamp near their campus. So this is where um, we get the term swamp gas from. <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah. And swamp pyramid is like, that's my favorite UFO I think I've ever heard of. Yeah. Like that's just such an, that's such a creepy thing to see. Yeah. Uh, swamp, like, pyra- swamp pyramid with like a, a porthole in it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's weird as hell. Yep. So. How's that going to be gas? We're going to get to that. Uh, Blue Book quickly dispatched J. Allen Hynek to the area. And after a rushed investigation, like he was like forced to give a press conference early. He had a broken jaw. He um, he only got to talk to two or three witnesses from the uh, the Hillsdale case out of the 80 that were there. And he talked to Frank Manor. And the thing about Frank Manor is like he saw something, but his descriptions kept changing. So like, you know, uh, the, the main thing that he said was a pyramid shaped object. And then like uh, th- there were other things that he said, but like um, Heineck then goes because both of these sightings occurred in swamps that it was swamp gas. Just swamp yeah, that gas. seems like something might have just like slipped out of his mouth. Like he just knew he had to say words. Yeah. Didn't know why. Uh, swamp gas. Um, he Whatever got this, that means. He got the suggestion from a, um, I think it was like a security personnel at Hillsdale College who said, oh, I thought it was swamp gas at first. And then it was like, no, I kept watching it and it didn't look like swamp gas because it kept like hovering up and down. Mm. 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 So this caused such an uproar that... Gerald Ford requested the government investigate the sightings. That's when you know it's serious. <laughs> Gerald Ford, uh, governor of Michigan, is saying, get out there, investigate them UFOs, boys. Um, uh, essentially, this led to the government. Uh, it led to a, a panel called the O'Brien Panel. Uh, hmm. who made a recommendation that uh, the uh, government should seek out a university that could study the phenomenon and Blue Book's files independently and come to a determination. Um, the head of that panel was a man named Brian O'Brien. <laughs> a lot of Brian in that. Uh, but yeah. uh, um, at the time that this was, this controversy was going on, Enter James E. McDonald. Um, if you don't know who that is, he's a pretty amazing guy. Um, described as a genius to many, McDonald was an atmospheric physicist, uh, meaning that he was, his primary interest was weather, and uh, specifically cloud physics and weather, weather modification. He had a love of philosophy, sociology, psychology, and like so many other areas of science. Uh, he loved to mm-hmm. teach. Um, and, and here is his daughter's recollection of him, which is like, I, I, I just love it so much. Um, quote, 
he would get down on your level. I remember a fifth or sixth grade science fair that I did with the, with his help. The other kids were planning complicated projects they got out of science workbooks using test tubes, dials, and lots of paraphernalia. Dad asks, Dad said, ask a simple question about something in your life, something ordinary that you're curious about, and then figure out a way to find out more about it. He felt that curiosity was the heart of science, and even the simplest questions a child might have about the world were important. The question I asked was about human hair, whether its color and texture have anything to do with how strong it is. This probably interested me because of my own wispy hair. He helped me design an experiment that involved collecting hair from different people and testing it with nickels piled on a, on a little tray. It was nothing fancy at all. Well, the class thought it was so goofy. They were doing real experiments they got out of books. But Dad's approach was, this is real science. It doesn't necessarily require complicated equipment. It requires a question that you really want to answer, end quote. Oh, hell yeah. 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 Just just an all-around, like, good dude. Um, yeah. He was said to give lectures without the use of any notes, but would give complicated handouts about any presentation that he gave, including presentations about UFOs. He was smart, but open to learning. Uh, quote, he could be having a conversation with you and you could say something which would spark a thought in his mind about an aspect of the world, be it politics, be it a natural phenomenon, whatever. He'd realized there was something about it that, that he did not know. He was going to have to find out, and he'd take off for the science library, end quote. Um, it didn't matter what it was. Um, and this is, this is intensely interesting to me because um, after attending a baseball game, he became fascinated with home runs and how they were hit <laughs> to the point where he went to ballparks and he started doing experiments with home run hitters to determine what the biggest factor was in uh, hitting a home run. And uh, the, what he basically found out was it's the speed of the bat. It's not the heaviness of the bat, but the speed. So mm. this revelation was carried in like national newspapers to the point where ballplayers now actually use lighter bats because of it. Man, just like UFOs, baseball has a, uh, a weird hold over the American psyche. It does. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, um, I, yeah, I'm down. I'll, I'll have some <laughs> baseball. <laughs> uh, he uh, he photographed raindrops um, and described them as hamburger bun shaped. <laughs> uh, but like he wrote over like 50 technical papers that were published and like well, a ton more that weren't. Um. In early 1954, he was selected by the University of Chicago to help establish an Institute of Atmospheric Physics in Tucson, Arizona, of all places. So he picked, <laughs> he picked up his family and moved there. And, and a few years later, he kind of develops interest in UFOs. And he just began to investigate cases quietly from about 1958 to 1966, you know, just local Arizona cases. Um, and at a certain point, he became so irritated with Project Blue Book's handling of the UFO problem, especially when it came to those Michigan sightings, uh, that he decided that he should look at the files and see where they were going wrong. He was the kind of guy that like really wanted to get hands on with everything. Is like, I can yeah, solve yeah. this problem. Yeah, I, I, totally. I can solve this problem. So 
In April of 1966, he applied for a grant through the Office of Naval Research to have a look at the Blue Books files. McDonald believed that most cases could be explained and that um, an average of 0.5 to 2% was the normal range for unexplained cases. So, you know, he's he's working within the ballpark here. Uh, mm. He was initially denied, but later approved. And on June 6, 1966, visited Wright-Patterson Air Force Force Base and um, the Blue Book offices. Immediately, the the person that was kind of showing him around was saying like, oh, you need to have a debunking position when you look at these files. So automatically trying to tell him what he should think right yeah. when he gets in the door. Yeah. The first thing they tell him is like, this is not impartial. Yeah. No. Like, no. Yeah. yeah. Sick. Yeah. And they made the mistake of giving him an unredacted copy of the Robertson panel report as the template for the project's investigatory methods. Really <laughs> dumb move. This yeah. is stupid. Very stupid. Um, so McDonald flipped through this thing and uh, he wasn't happy because it wasn't science to him. Yeah. And, yeah. He must have been so sad. So disappointed. Like, that's yeah, stupid. Wrong guy to give that to. Yeah, exactly. Like, they didn't know who they were giving it to. But, like, uh, you know, the, the, that's how that's how this stuff happens. Falls through the cracks sometimes. And two days later, he visited Dr. J. Allen Hynek at the Lindenheimer Astrophysics Research Center in Evanston, Illinois. And he just confronted him saying that he should have spoken up about this cover-up way back when. And it got so heated that Jacques Vallée had to intervene and break it up. Um, Heineck, for his sake, claimed that he didn't want to say anything because he didn't want to lose access to the Blue Book files because if he did, he would have been replaced. Yeah, so. I mean, unfortunately, that's pretty... It's like, that's true, yeah. You know, like that's a re it's a reasonable response. It's not like the Paragon. Like that's what M McDonald would do, but that's why McDonald wouldn't be in Jan Hynek's position. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so. As you can imagine. McDonald did not give this up. Um, no, no, he's not gonna. He goes back to Wright Patterson at the end of the month and he asks to see the Robertson panel report to make a copy, but he's denied. Um, unironically, the Freedom of Information Act is signed into law a few days later. <laughs> uh, it doesn't apply in this case, but it's still interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, July 20th, he makes a third trip to Blue Book and is told that the report has been reclassified and he is now firmly convinced that Aliens are a plausible explanation for UFOs. This is what always happens. Yeah. The more you try to seal stuff up, it makes people go for the wildest explanation they can think of yeah. every time. They'll never no. learn. No, never. Never, ever. McDonald then goes on to give talks about the Air Force concealing UFO reports, but all of these talks fall on deaf ears. Um, or he's just openly ridiculed. Like... Mm. 
it, it's sad to see a guy who is so beloved within like by his peers just like absolutely ripped apart because he believes UFOs yeah. uh, are a genuine problem and does so in as skeptical a manner as possible. Granted, uh, when the dudes like coming out saying, hey, aliens are happening because they're getting they're denying shit here. Um, yeah, it's it's. It's going to ruin him very yeah uh, very badly um what's crazy is that like you know just over 10 years earlier like in 52 like reporters and newspaper people were you know swarming radar towers and like it was a thing that was obviously being taken as like seriously it wasn't something to ridicule over and like that's not that long 12 years or so like yeah it's i I guess them CIA boys did a good job at just spinning the narrative real quick, really quick. Yeah. Um, so, um, it's the CIA. They're shitbags. Plain yeah. and simple. Just absolute shit. Um, <laughs> on October 5th, he gave his opinion at the University of Arizona's uh, Department of Meteorology uh, colloquium, and he's just completely laughed at um, he then speaks to the media, and in response, Heineck actually starts to change his position and starts to talk about UFOs more openly. Um, it's not clear if this is because of McDonald, but he ends up talking to Newsweek. He ends up having a paper published in Science, uh, like about kind of this open, uh, like the need for an open investigation of UFOs. So I tend to think that McDonald did get to him a little bit. Yeah. I don't see how he couldn't have. Like, yeah. it would definitely have some impact on it for sure. Yeah. Um, eventually, part of the report was sent to John Lear. I think it was like 26 pages out of 33. Uh, he John Lear is a science columnist. Not the other John Lear who's... The, no, we're avoiding conspiracy John Lear here. <laughs> uh, the, we're talking about the science uh, columnist of the Saturday Review. Um, and along with um, the acknowledgement that this was a CIA-led panel and the person that gave him the report wanted to make that absolutely clear, um, the panel was finally exposed. They printed part of the report in the in the Saturday Review, and McDonald would go on to investigate over 600 cases in his time. He would write articles in, like, Flying Saucer Review and other... UFO periodicals, he would give talks. Um, but James E. McDonald's story and the way that it comes to an end is not a very happy one. Um, uh, he committed suicide in 1971. His, car his career Damn. was... Um, his career did not recover after this. Yeah. And, you know, the, it's a... Yeah, it's a sad ending to a story about the CIA just being absolutely, completely shit. Um, yeah, that sucks. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that sucks real bad. Yeah, I don't so, like that. <laughs> no, that 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 one is uh, is a bummer. But like, um, 
honestly, his life is one that should be celebrated just for the type of person that he was, the research that he did. Um, there's a great biography of him by Ann Dreffel called Firestorm that I recommend everybody go read. There are parts of it that are really boring because like it's literally there's one chapter about one case that he investigated in Arizona that is like it's interesting, but it's so drawn out that it's like um, you could have cut this down a little bit. But uh, interestingly enough, the yeah. fund for UFO research actually funded this biography of him. So oh, um, and the fund for UFO research, as we all know, is associated with big money. Bobby Bigelow. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, that's uh, we're ending this episode on a, on a on a sour note. But seriously, go get Firestorm. It's a really good book. Um, I use part of it for this uh, this episode. But um, yeah, Sequoia, you got any closing thoughts here on this on this you episode? Know, yeah, I do. Um, fucking CIA, man. They like it. I think they're both sinister and stupid. I think they looked at. <laughs> especially like when Dallas was up in there and, and it seems like they looked at this thing, UFOs, they weren't worried about that. They were worried about killing communists and they were just like, Oh yeah. How do we're, we're not going to think about what this is at all. The only thing we're concerned about is what do we want the public to think about it? Just the end. So they just like bungled like what they were looking at, but then did a very good job of just spinning narratives and, manipulate it's just like such a egregious um misuse of unearned power that like yeah they're wild man it's back in back in the day that they were just some fucking rich kids with more power than anybody yeah weird guys weird guys just absolutely the ultimate the ultimate trash and they ruined a man's life um yeah yeah um they ruined yeah they ruined lots of lots of men's lives they, lots they, of everybody's they, lives they they ruined everything they, they just it's ruined like, everything it's like they had the power that should belong to like the end quote like illuminati or like some grand conspiracy but they're not right they're not they were just some fucking guys with way too much influence and authority and gravitas yes. yeah 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 it's worse than if it was a grand like running the world type thing i don't it, know exactly no it really is because it's like it's it's the government it's literally the yeah, government exactly <laughs> oh fuck um but you know if people want to go check out the Nonsense Bazaar, where where can they do that? They can do that anywhere fine podcasts are sold for free. <laughs> anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find the Nonsense Bazaar. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and all that and all that stuff. Yeah. Just yeah. listen. We're fun. Yeah, you should go listen to them. They are absolutely fun. Um uh and if you want to listen to us, you can do that pretty much where you can listen to them. I mean, we're Hell in the yeah. same places. We're all over there. Um, 
uh, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com if you want all the, you know, links to things, you know, like if you want to give me money, you can do so over at Patreon. We we both have Patreon pages here. You can throw money money at us. We're cool with it. Um, we, we accept your your dollars and cents. Um, give Rob your money. Yeah. <laughs> give them your money. Give give them your money. Uh so uh, we also have like a really dope digital resource page that I like to pimp out every now and then because it's it's really good. We assembled a really good resource page for old UFO journals and sources and stuff. So go check that out. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a P.O. box if you for some reason want to send me things. Uh, none of you ever do, and that's fine. But it's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. Um I, uh, I I write a webcomic with my buddy Todd Purse called Welcome UFO People. We uh, we recently uh, released a new edition of it honoring the Canary Island UFO sighting of June 22nd, 1976. So if you want to check that out, uh, it's Welcome UFO People on Instagram, Welcome UFO Peeps on Twitter and our Patreon pages. There are high-res images over there for you. Um, our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Flows for the use of their song UFO as our theme song. Uh, Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast. Uh, our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg. And the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or a group of assholes in a room, like just ruining people's lives <laughs> in gray. We trust while smoking cigars. <laughs> It's